From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. As a child growing up in western New York with Mohawk cousins, the history and world of Native American culture has always fascinated me. The story of indigenous peoples of America speak through many voices, music, art, culture, but are all too often missing from the landscape of museums, historic preservation, and historic sites. Today's guest, G. Peter Jemison, is a Renaissance figure in Native culture, art, heritage, and historic preservation, and also serves as the historic site manager of Ganondagan State Historic Site, the location of a 17th century Seneca town in Victor, New York. On today's PreserveCast, we'll explore this rich history of the Iroquois and learn how their heritage continues in the present. Hey, this is Nick Redding, the host of PreserveCast, and before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support the program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives, and we all greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get back to the episode. The career of G. Peter Jemison, Seneca, Heron Clan, spans decades across a wide swath of diverse accomplishments with an immeasurable worldwide impact. Through his art, Jemison has explored a wide variety of topics, from creating political works that portray contemporary social commentary to those that reflect his relationship with the natural world. Widely shown and collected, Jemison's works are rooted in the framework of Native American art. Known for his naturalistic paintings and series of works done on brown paper bags, his art embodies Orenda, the traditional Iroquois belief that every living thing and every part of creation contains a spiritual force. His paintings, videos, and mixed-media works have been exhibited in numerous solo and group exhibitions in the U.S., the U.K., and Germany. He's also an esteemed administrator, curator, editor, and writer. In 2004, he was elected board member at large of the American Alliance of Museums and was the founding director of the American Indian Community House Gallery in New York City. Jemison received his academic arts education from the University of Siena in Siena, Italy, before earning a B.S. in arts education from the Buffalo State College, as well as an honorary doctorate. A leading authority on the subject of Iroquois history, Jemison co-edited the Treaty of Canandaigua, 1794, 200 years of treaty relations between the Iroquois Confederacy and the United States. He frequently contributes writings on the repatriation of sacred objects, cultural patrimony, and the human remains of the Iroquois. Jemison currently serves as the historic site manager of Ganondagan State Historic Site, the location of a 17th century Seneca town in Victor, New York, identified as a National Historic Landmark and listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Additionally, he is a representative for the Seneca Nation of Indians on the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, as well as an Indian tribe Native Hawaiian representative on the Advisory Council of Historic Preservation. 
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. And today, we're very excited to have with us Peter Jemison, who is, you know, I think, as we said in the, the intro to this episode, a real Renaissance figure um, who has covered uh, and worked in so many interesting um, components of Native culture, art, heritage, and also serves as the historic site manager of Ganondagan State Historic Site. Uh, a Seneca town in Victor, New York. Um, Peter, it is, it's such a, a pleasure to have you with us here today and have the opportunity to talk with you. Um, and, and before we get started and really talk about the work that you do and your art and all these different facets of your life, um, we always love to learn more about our, where our guests came from, where they grew up. Um, and I suppose in your case, what led you to be so inspired and engaged in, in preserving um, Iroquois and, and Native history? Uh, well, let me start by saying I give thanks that all of you are well, those who will be watching and hearing me speak uh, whenever this is aired. Um, so I, I grew up in a hamlet called Irving, which is a border town of the Cattaraugus Reservation, a Seneca territory in western New York. We are approximately 35 miles south of Buffalo. And um, it is one of three Seneca territories. There's Cattaraugus, Allegheny, and a place called Oil Springs near Cuba, New York. Allegheny is the closest town is uh, Salamanca. And uh, anyway, I grew up in Irving and uh, my father is from the Cattaraugus territory, uh, whereas my mother is from the Allegheny territory and I described that as another Seneca Territory in uh, southwestern New York State. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to school uh, first in Irving and then went to school in Silver Creek, a town about three miles away from, uh, from Irving. Um, you know, this is a town that, as I said, sits right on the border of the Cattaraugus and, and uh, what we would call non-native land or white land. And we were only separated by a creek. The Cattaraugus Creek runs through the middle of our territory. And so many of my cousins, my grandmother and others lived on the res and uh, we lived just off. Um, my family's land was tied up in family and uh, uh, the land was leased. We didn't have a, a land on which we could build a home there. So my father uh, took over a home in this hamlet of Irving. And uh, it's one of those places that had a general store, which was the post office. It was the clothing store. It was a place for dry goods and for um, uh, uh, things like coal cuts and uh, rope and nails and <laughs> uh, had everything in that store, kind of a jumbled up store. Uh, but very interesting for me to go in there because of all the smells that were always in that store as a kid. Um, I always say I lived in a multicultural society because we had many migrant laborers who came to work on the farms around Irving in the growing season and the harvest season. Um, we had a canning factory across the tracks, across the creek, and lots of people came from uh, Italian communities. They were first-generation Italians living in Buffalo, came out there to work. We had... Um, migrants who came from the south to work in the canning factory during the season. And uh, native people worked there, people from the community worked there, Irving. So, you know, a lot of exposure to a lot of different kinds of people who were 
you know, from places like Puerto Rico, Haiti, um, Jamaica, you know, that came to work in this area. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my main experience was really growing up in a Seneca community. Uh, my father's Seneca, my mother's an enrolled Seneca. And uh, in, the, in my youth, um, we went to a church which was on the reservation and uh, everybody there was Seneca, except for the minister and maybe one or two other people who came from outside the res to church there. Um, it was kind of an active community with a community building and, and things like that. Um, not so today, but, but that's how it was as I grew up. Um, and then I went on to uh, college uh, in Buffalo. I went to Buffalo State College uh, over on Elmwood Avenue, and um, I had uh, the Albright Knox Art Gallery across the street from us, and that was a, a place I visited frequently. Um, I had one other experience, which was very uh, uh, sort of life-changing and important to me. I was an exchange student uh, in the city of Siena, Italy, and I lived in an Italian home where no one in the home spoke any English, and I was put into a total immersion situation um, where I had to learn uh, Italian and learn to be able to communicate with my family, basically, and people on the street and so forth. Um, so it, that was quite an experience, uh, and, and it was an immersion in Italian art, uh, both Renaissance, pre-Renaissance, you know, medieval, um, all the way up to the contemporary art of Italy. And, um, you know, I was there as an art student at Buffalo State, and so that really kind of, I guess you could say, it, it pushed me further in my art career. Uh, but one of the things that, <laughs> I'm going to finish it with this, one of the things that was, was um, sort of troubling about my experience was while going to college, I did not learn one thing about Native American art. I never saw one example or one reproduction in all the art history classes I took. The only place I recall a conversation about Native Americans was a conversation in my pottery class, a ceramics class, where talked about making coil pots, and that that was the style of Native American pottery. Um, so everything I learned about Native American art, I taught myself um, after I graduated from college and um, after I had, you know, other experiences of teaching and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in, it's interesting that you you mentioned the Italian Renaissance and um, well, yeah, a lot of what is it, what you just kind of gave us there is is interesting and a lot that we can unpack and kind of get into. But um, you're you know, as I said in the introduction, you're you're sort of like this definition, at least in my eyes, of sort of a Renaissance man. Like there's art, culture, heritage, you know, historian. You you've excelled in all these different fields. I'm curious, is there a common thread to the work? Um, I mean, obviously, there's 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 this common thread and in, in a, a significance and importance of elevating native culture and history. But is there a common thread even beyond that that you find that that interests you, that that inspires you, that drives you to to work on all these different areas? Well, um, I guess I just have to talk about what I have done in order to answer your question. Sure. So. Um, I, I went out, you know, kind of in the world, and, and I've lived in a lot of different places. I, I moved to New York City directly out of college, and I was, you know, only uh, 23 years old, actually, you know, 
during that experience. And um, I, uh, you know, gradually I met native artists through friends of mine who worked for the, what was called the Museum of the American Indian. They, they developed an exhibit and they included me and it was an exhibit of contemporary native artists. Uh, very unusual in that museum because that museum was, um, you know, founded a long time back and um, paid very little attention to the contemporary world, actually. But because my friends worked there, they created this contemporary exhibit. That led me to meet many native artists, and it led me to work with an art gallery that was just very, uh, just beginning, uh, located in Soho in New York City. Uh, it's a place where I exhibited, a place where I helped to bring together artists uh, curating exhibits myself. Um, but all of that, it was only kind of a preparation for what happened next, which was my own nation, the Seneca Nation, hired me as the education program director. I had been working in public schools and I had been teaching art and so forth, and actually also counseling uh, elementary school students uh, who were hyperactive. Um, and I wound up, uh, anyway, going back home to the Cattaraugus Territory to serve as the education program director. And in the course of that experience, um, I eventually wound up being responsible for the Allegheny Territory as well, uh, running education programs. And not we did have remedial programming, you know, helping kids with their, with their schoolwork. But the bigger thing that we were doing was really making cultural teaching more available by hiring the people who were the ones who retained the, the songs and the dances and kept those things going, people who did our traditional crafts, uh, people who cooked our traditional foods, obviously people who were the speakers of our language. And as a result of me working with them, with those people, I really had a real education myself, which I had not had as a youth growing up. Um, you know, my family was more assimilated they were more likely to, even though both of my grandmothers were fluent speakers of our language, neither of them taught me any, and my parents did not speak the language. So now I came into contact through the education program with those people who were fluent speakers, and um, they insisted on me attending the programs that they presented, the classes that they offered, so that I would learn, too. So I went through this immersion, and I also then, I had really grown up at Cattaraugus, but now I connected with my mother's side of the family from Allegheny. So that expanded my understanding of, you know, how I was related to all of these people and um, to my clan, to the Heron clan and, and all of that, because we trace our clan through our mother. So I would tie that in. So the, the common thread, if there is a common thread here, is that, first of all, I'm Onundawaka, meaning I'm a member of the people of the Great Hill. Uh, people call us Seneca in English, but the word Seneca has no meaning in our language. Uh, so so uh, finding out what it meant to say I was Onundawaka, it means we have songs and dances. It means we have a language. It means we have a government. It means we have territories that are still in our possession. You know, it means that 
we have a knowledge of the forest and the trees and the plants and the, you know, uh, the gardens that we maintain and the medicines that grow. And, you know, this all together, we call it Angwe Onweka, a way of life, a Native American way of life. We have that. And we were given instructions by various messengers who came to us to provide us with the knowledge of how we are to survive here. And that knowledge is still uh, extant. We still understand it. We still um, have an opportunity to participate in our ceremonial way of life and to, uh, you know, grow from that. And so um, all of that, you know, gave me a great sense of what it meant uh, to call myself, uh, you know, a Seneca or an Onondawaka and um, to give me a sense of pride in who I am, to give me a sense of value to what, what it is that I can learn from my own people. And the thing I always point out is that the teachers that I had the opportunity to encounter were very generous in sharing with me their knowledge. You know, I was not ashamed to admit that I didn't know. And so I just had to go to them and ask questions, some of which now when I look back how naive they were. But nevertheless, they just answered them, you know, to the best of their ability and um, encouraged me to keep learning and and kind of opened the door like here. Yeah. Well, and I was gonna, I was going to say, you know, I shared with you before we we hit record that I grew up in in, in Buffalo, New York, and there are um, you know Mohawk members of of my family, and I, I I too feel naive in some of the questions I even have for you today, but so appreciate you um, you know being willing to to answer them, and also um, you know I, I went out to the historic site um, this summer uh, while we were up in New York State sort of trying to stay away from everyone else and and just kind of enjoy nature um, and went to the site and found it so moving and such a such an, an amazing place and obviously impacted by all of this and and the the experiences you've had I thought it was interesting when we were there that um, one of the native um, tour guides who took us through the longhouse and we talk about that I guess um, was it was emphatic and made it very clear to the group that was with her um, that this is not just history this is this continues on that the native people of of upstate New York are not just a historical footnote they still exist and I, I think that that's like such a powerful statement and something that um, people like me and, and others need to hear. I also think it's just kind of interesting as you were talking about this, that you it's almost like you had to go to an, an immersion in Italy in order to have your immersion happen back home too. Because you, you've mentioned that word now twice and one happened in Italy and then one happened with your own people and your own story in upstate New York. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's true, Nicholas. Um, I... I guess what one of the things I took away from my experience in Italy was that the Italian people valued the art from the very earliest to the present. They, they really thought it important, they preserved it, and they lived with it, you know. And um, that kind of gave me the, the thought that when I came back to the United States again, um, Art was so secondary almost to, to people. You know, it wasn't like, uh, other than the art museum that was across the road from Buffalo State, um, there wasn't a lot of art being talked about. Uh, 
Uh, obviously, I went to school to an art school. We talked about it and we were involved with it. But uh, I was very fortunate that my mother and father thought it important to take me to see art exhibits when I was still in high school. And I, I saw a couple of significant ones. Uh, Vincent van Gogh, uh, uh, Andrew Wyeth were two that I recall in particular. And, um, and then I took an art course, uh, sort of a pre-college art course at Fredonia State. And it sort of gave me this uh, view that, oh, there are really artists and, and that there are people who make art for a living and uh, who create art and then people purchase the art and they exhibit it and so forth. Um, so I, I, so now, you know, why was there no discussion of us, of the, of the original people in any of these experiences I had had and um, that I had to search it out and search for that immersion experience to learn what I wanted to know um, and then found it to be so uh, <laughs> alive and well and enriched um, in spite of a lot of effort to take it away from us, you know, to send children to boarding schools where they were not allowed to speak their language, where they were discouraged from having any kind of relationship really with their families while they were in the boarding school, uh, to re remove from them any, no any understanding of what it meant to be Onondawaka. Um, you know, all of these things, these efforts that had taken place, um, you know, the history, which I then wound up immersing myself into. When I, when I came to work at Ganondagan, I had to learn from the 17th century forward, what is the history of our people? I had, you know, bits and pieces of it, but now it was really a total immersion in that history from you know the time period when Ganondagan existed, 1655 to 1687, then what happens in the 18th century, what happens subsequently in the 19th century, how did we move from where we once were in the Finger Lakes of Western New York all the way over to the, you know the southern part of Lake Erie? How do we wind up there, and and uh, how did Buffalo, which was once a major Seneca territory and a territory for all six nations, wind up becoming a city and not ours. We don't, right. we don't live on that territory. So all of that history, um, again, I had to learn. And I, and I found that a lot of it, um, you know, it's, it's not being taught. I can tell you that. The majority of it is not being taught in schools. So I had to find the sources for it. And, um, and fortunately, there were, again, Seneca people who were working at the University of Buffalo who helped me to connect with this real story and, uh, and teach me, you know, how to find out more about all of this. So maybe that's a good place to, I mean, it, since we've kind of pivoted to the history here, um, for those, for, you know, we have listeners not only all across the country, but really all across the world. Um, and this is, in a way, sort of talk about a naive question. This is sort of like saying, like, could you tell us about the Italian people? Like, I don't know how you possibly could answer that question. But yes. for people who are unfamiliar with, with the, the Iroquois, um, w what should they know? Um, 
how significant is their story to the story of American history? I mean, obviously, this is a loaded question because it is so terribly significant, and and the roots of our democracy are almost based and truly are based in the in the manner in which they govern themselves. But but how important is that story? What what should people know? What would you want people to know um, ab- about the Iroquois Confederacy and and the the those who made them up, and then I guess maybe we can then kind of go from there and talk about Ganondagan. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to correct you again. It's Ganondagan. 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 Very good. Okay. So, well, first of all, we are a five nations confederacy originally, and it would be Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca. We're the first five original nations And we're founded by a message of peace. We're unified by a message of peace, power, and righteousness that is brought to us by a peacemaker over a thousand years ago. So our Confederacy pre-existed the arrival of Europeans. And, you know, we were, um, each of us within our own territories, spread across what we now call New York State. And we refer to the Mohawk as the keeper of the Eastern door. We refer to the Onondaga as the keeper of the central fire. They're in the center of our Confederacy. And the Seneca, the Onondawaka, we are the keeper of the Western door. So we have those three uh, who are what we call the elder brothers of the Confederacy. The younger brothers are the Oneida and the Cayuga, Later, we are joined by the Tuscarora in 1722, and they become another of the younger brothers. So again, Mohawk, Onondaga, and Seneca were the elder brothers of the Confederacy. Oneida, Cayuga, and Tuscarora, the younger brothers. So today we are a Six Nations Confederacy, referring to ourselves as Hodinosani, which means really our ancestors built an extended house. And the house is not just the bark longhouse we lived in, which is longer than it is wide. It's the Confederacy itself. Because as I mentioned, there's an eastern door, there's a western door to this house, and we live within the house, each of us having our separate fire. And, um, you know, again, united by this message of peace. Now, you mentioned the way the government of the United States is structured. So it is the Uh, When we have a grand council, when all of these nations come together to council for uh, the well-being of our total confederacy, the Mohawk and Seneca seat themselves together on one side of the room. On the opposite side of the room sit the Oneida, the Cayuga, and the Tuscarora. And um, it's kind of like the Seneca and the Mohawk are the Senate. And if you will, the Oneida, the Cayuga, and the Tuscarora are the house. And then this meeting is chaired by the executive branch, which is the Onondaga Nation. They host the meeting. They bring us together. They are responsible for maintaining this fire of the Confederacy and um, the Tree of Peace. And, you know, this whole uh, idea of um, everyone having a voice in this, in the way in which we function as a Confederacy. the men who are elected as our leaders, not elected, I should really say, who are chosen as our leaders, because we don't use an elective process in the traditional government, uh, 
but the men who are chosen are uh, responsible to women who are called clan mothers. At the head of each of our clans, there is a woman, usually often the oldest woman of that clan, who is the voice and conscience of that leader, and we call the chiefs hoyane, of that hoyane, to help him make decisions that are in the best interest of the people. She's there to make sure that he acts in the best interest of the people. Now, um, so, so this is who we are. And, you know, we're now scattered still across New York State, living on much smaller territories than we originally had. Um, one of the other things I, I always stress, excuse me, is that um, we signed a treaty of peace following the Revolutionary War with the United States, when the United States was in a very formative stage. It was just coming out of the Revolutionary War, and it was, uh, you know, quite weak in terms of its monetary ability and structure, uh, quite weak in terms of its military ability at that particular time. And we signed a treaty of peace and friendship in Canandaigua, New York, in 1794. And that treaty of peace was signed by George Washington. And here's the part that I also like to mention. The Constitution of the United States states, it says, treaties are the supreme law of the land. This is in the U.S. Constitution. Treaties are the supreme law of the land. It doesn't say treaties with France. It doesn't say treaties with England. It says treaties, okay? We are the first people who signed treaties with the United States. We, the Six Nations, we, the original people, the Native people. And so when I ever hear, whenever I hear that someone who's going to be appointed to the Supreme Court is a strict constitutionalist, my question is, why don't you then respect our treaties? If you are taking the reading of the U.S. Constitution as it's written, as the writers intended, and it says treaties are the supreme law of the land, what is equivocal about that? What is it you don't understand about that, okay? Uh, how do you equivocate that and say, uh, well, except for Indians, uh, that's true, you know? Uh, so that's why all of our treaties have been violated. And it, again, it's because there isn't a respect for that. There is now the belief that somehow the laws that Congress has passed subsequently are more valid than the original Constitution is, and yet you're telling me that we're going to appoint the next person to the Supreme Court because they're a strict constitutionalist. I'm sorry to be so political here, but no, this I is think something it's, I, I really it's have fine. to talk I, about. I don't think anybody could visit the historic site or learn about the horrific things that have been done to either native peoples in upstate New York or any part of the country and not come to that same conclusion and that same question where they've been pushed off their land or treaties have been ignored. And obviously there was a, and didn't plan on getting into this, but there was a Supreme court case just recently out in, I guess it was Eastern Oklahoma that I guess in some ways found for the native peoples and that that's that treaty still stands. So, um, yeah, there, there's there's a lot that that needs to be done in terms of um, honoring those treaties, and and uh, I am I'm I'm a hundred percent with you on that. I, not a question in my mind that those treaties should be honored. So you know, a lot of people would would say to us, "Well, you know, you're living in the past. 
Well, we're not living in the past because those still have consequences for us. And that's why we have to bring them up is that, you know, it's, it's not a thing that happened. When we talk about 1794, in my lifetime, we honored the 200th anniversary. 200 years is not that long ago, you know, to us. And so when we, when I was part, when I was the uh, co-chair of the Canandaigua Treaty Commemoration in, in 1994, again, as I say, that was 200 years after that treaty had been signed. And here's the, here's the part that you re might really appreciate and your, your listeners will have to look this up to try to visualize it. From the Genesee River, which runs literally into the city of Rochester, New York, from the Genesee River all the way to Erie, Pennsylvania, the westernmost part of New York State, was all guaranteed to the Seneca by the Treaty of Canandaigua. From Rochester to Erie, Pennsylvania, all of that land as a result of the 1794 treaty was guaranteed to the Seneca Nation that we could live in free use and enjoyment of that land. So uh, what happened? Okay, I'm not gonna go into that today, of course, but that is, uh, that is the gist of my question for that I want your listeners to kind of just look at that uh, territory to realize um, when we talk about what land was ours. And, and this is the later time period. This isn't the original territory. Right. This, is, this isn't even to, say, even to open up the conversation about the original territory. This is just the territory that the United States government agreed to. Agreed to. Um, and I think it's important, you know, for listeners who are across the country to ask those questions about the places where they live, um, and do they live on what was once promised to Native peoples, and and why did it end up that way? Yes. Um, and perhaps find a place um, like your historic site where they can visit and ask those questions, and and um, and and have that experience. And maybe we can talk about the site just just briefly, because um, yes. I know your time's limited, but. Um, you know, what is the, the experience like when people come and visit there? I know the, the visitor center is beautiful. It's very new. Um, and, and how did it come together that this would be um, a historic site and a, and a state park for that matter? Yeah. Well, I want to credit a, a non-Native man. Uh, his name was J. Sheldon Fisher. J. Sheldon Fisher lived in Fishers, New York, which is just a little outside of the, the town of Victor, and uh, a very small town. But he was a, a, a local historian, and he really believed it was very important to preserve Seneca history, the Seneca story. And so he made it his business to really advocate for the preservation of that original uh, site that was Ganondagan. And... Um, and so in 1964, it was de declared that that land was declared a national landmark and, a, um, and it was put on the National Register of Historic Places. And so Ganondagan since 1964 has been recognized as a uh, significant area, uh, which was an original Seneca land, uh, an original Seneca town from 1655 to 1687. And again, Sheldon created a group called, it was called the Ganagero Association because the name for Ganondagan previous to 1987 was Ganagero. And I worked to give it a correct Seneca name, Ganondagan. Um, so at any rate, uh, 
So not only do we have 569 acres of part of the original territory, but then, uh, you know, we built a bark longhouse uh, in the years of 1998 and 1997, 97 and 98. We built a Seneca bark longhouse to help children understand the architectural space that we lived in. And then we expanded and built the Seneca Art and Culture Center and, and opened that in 2015 to be able to tell the story more year-round and to really have a, um, a, a, a space where we can have changing exhibits, contemporary art, we can show um, the history of the story, we can show a video uh, on the original creation story of our people where interpreters have first-person experiences with visitors that come there. We have an auditorium space, uh, we have an archival room, um, classrooms, you know, et cetera. So, uh, and a gift shop as well, but so that we could kind of make this a more full experience than if we're simply standing outside talking. But we are very, very committed to the preservation of the land, to the restoration of native species that were growing on that land. We have several acres devoted to the native grasses that were growing there and the native flowers that were growing there. We set aside two very large areas, and we're expanding that uh, to include more of that. We have set aside an area which is basically a bird sanctuary within the territory as well. Um, so there's a lot of work that goes on on the outside of the, you know, beyond simply the building. And we have a hill called Fort Hill where there was a palisaded granary um, that was attacked by the French and burned. And that was where our corn stores were located. Uh, the French really attacked our, our food. They burned, um, well, they, they record 700,000 minots of our corn, which was a staple of our food. It is still today. Corn, beans, and squash are our three sisters. They're our staples. And our women were the agriculturalists and remain very involved in our agriculture. Um, so uh, all of these stories we, we are able to unfold at Ganond again. Uh, there's something significant that I know you indicated. This is the only historic site in New York State dedicated to a Native American theme. There is no other. And we are only a Seneca site. And obviously the other five nations, you know, do not have their own historic sites. Um, and so there is a, a place called the Scanout Center over in uh, Onondaga Territory. And I know the Oneida of New York have a, a, a building they use for telling their historic uh, story. But people like the Cayuga have no territory. You know, they, they never got a settlement where they got back land. Um, the Tuscarora, they, they are telling their story in different locations, uh, with, just outside of their territory, I might say. But, um, you know, the Mohawk, again, there's no historic site telling their, their real story. Um, and these, these stories really it could link people all the way across the state. They could travel across the state if, they, if these existed and learn, um, you know, the, the real story of the original territory that's today called New York State. And why did our people locate themselves there? Because of a very... Uh, great soil that allows itself to, you know, allows us to raise 
our three sisters, that we were an agricultural society because of the quality of the soil uh, within our Aboriginal territories. And um, the preservation of our original seeds and the, and the growing of them is still something we're very engaged in. Uh, working toward food sovereignty, working toward um, eating the original foods that we were given. Um, these are very active parts of our way of life today, not past tense, today. Yeah, and I think that, you know, not not the past tense was something that, obviously, what you just said there is, is powerful, but it's it's something that struck me when I visited the site, and it was it was very clear in the interpretation, um, and I think that's that's to your credit, to the credit of everyone who's who's put together the model of interpretation there, uh, which is so powerful. And I and I hope people listening, whether they're in New York or whether they're elsewhere in the country, um, are thinking about this because I know the preservation community has sort of had an awakening, I guess, in recent years that we have to dedicate ourselves to telling the the full story of American history and and of the history of you know, the land, I guess. And everybody was here even before American history for that matter. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's playing out in, in telling many different stories now. And, it, and it's critical that we, we, we tell these stories and that we work with folks. And I, and I wonder for people listening who are across the country or for in New York state for that matter, <laughs> um, if they're interested in supporting the preservation of, of indigenous and native culture and heritage, what what's the best way that they can be good advocates and allies in that work if they themselves are not native peoples? Um, well, what you're doing here is very important. You're providing people with an education by inviting a guest like myself to come and and you know use the airwaves and and tell a story that they don't you know frequently hear. Uh, so educating themselves, educating themselves to know and understand uh, the real story of this place that we call home, America, the United States. Um, what is its true story? What is its true history? Um, you know, this isn't to make anybody feel guilty. This is to educate our populace so that we uh, understand, you know, how did, the, how did this country come to be the way it is? And, Right at the, at the moment, as you as you pointed out, we're going through a time period, a kind of a, in some ways, a difficult time period, of recognizing that we that, that America has not always been very inclusive. It has been kind of exclusive of certain groups of people, and um, it has not opened all opportunity to all people, even though that's what we're supposed to stand for. And we're having to revisit the question of how did it get to where we are now, where there are people who have to uh, raise their voices for justice, raise their voices for equality, and point out the history that has gone on in this country. And, um, and it's uncomfortable for people. There are people who are very, you know, very disturbed by having to revisit these questions. They're uncomfortable with it. Uh, and what I am trying to do uh, by having interpreters that, like the one that you mentioned, where you meet someone who is actually a member of one of those nations of our of our nations, is to hear a first person story, whether they grew up in a city, whether they grew up in the, on a reservation, or they grew up in a town. What was their life experience like? And if you come to visit us, 
that's one of the experiences you're going to have. You're going to have an opportunity to meet an actual person in the present uh, who can talk also about their past. So part of our job is educating our own people. When we bring an interpreter in, they don't all know their own history, their own story. We go through a process of helping them to understand more about who they are because they will stand in front of classrooms and in front of visitors and tell a story. And they are a part of that story from the past to the present. And so, you know, there's kind of a, a two-way street going there. And our visitors are both native and non-native. But, we always, but my intent is the story that we're telling, we never have to apologize for because we're telling a true story. So we don't have to apologize to native people because we said this. We are telling the story the way it needs to be told in a truthful manner so that everyone learns from it and gains something from the experience of the visit. So educating themselves is one of the things. For example, we have a friends organization. It's a not-for-profit organization. People can join the Friends of Ganond again. And by joining that, they will have opportunity to see the programming that right now is virtual and online and um, that we are presenting so that even though we cannot have full capacity at the center, we're still having a presence, you know, as we are today over the internet, over the internet and we'll have when this is broadcast. And so this is, uh, this is what we've done as, as a substitute for in-person visits. Um, but all over the country, there are opportunities for people to learn and to meet people first, first person. And, uh, you know, when, when and if things return to a, a more, uh, whatever we say, a safe environment and people can travel again, uh, I think it's important to, to visit the United States before you get on a plane and go to Europe or go to other places. I mean, maybe you want to go back to your homeland where you came from. I appreciate that. But learn about your own country. Visit your own part of the country that you're unfamiliar with and learn about it. And um, who are the people that lived there originally? Acknowledge that and, um, and teach it to your children. Uh, you know, children are curious. They want to know. We often have had the experience that Europeans coming to visit us know more than Americans do about us. And, and that's uh, shocking. And I lay that blame at the foot of our education system. Yeah. I, 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 I can't um, dispute that. I, as a little kid, went to Red Jacket Academy in um, the city of Buffalo, and there was no discussion of Red Jacket. Um, and, and, and it was it's sort of the ultimate irony, right? Like the, the, the school itself was named after him, and there was, there was nothing growing up about that. So, um, you know, I have to say, I, when I visited the site this summer, you know, I've visited thousands of historic sites and this has to be in my top 10 of like the places I think people should go um, just because of the power of the interpretation there um, and the simplicity. I mean, it's a beautiful building, the modern building where you're able to showcase the culture and the heritage and the video was fantastic. Um, but it also, um, it, it, there's, a, there's a certain 
elegance and the simplicity of the interpretation as well. It, it allows you to, yes, you, you get to see the historic longhouse, but then when you come out of it into the, the native landscape with native plants and um, bird sanctuaries and trails, um, there's just something um, said in in sort of the, the simplicity and the silence and the, the solitude of the space that couldn't otherwise be said or or is is better left unsaid. So whatever it is you're doing there, um, and 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 you should be extremely proud of it because it is it stands out um, uh, and is a place everybody should visit and and they should find those places in their own backyards if they're if they can't get to uh, Victor, New York anytime soon. Um, so Nick, let me just interrupt to just sure, thank no you. please just thanking you for what you just said. Um, I'm really glad that you, you took away that kind of feeling and that kind of an experience um, because that's what we want visitors to receive. And uh, whenever they come, you know, whatever time of the year, and, and if, they, if we can have some personal contact with them, we want them to leave with that good feeling, you know, of, of what they've just experienced and learned. Um, and, and it, I want to just go back to one thing. Sure. Right down the road from Ganondagan is Red Jacket School System. And likewise, they have no idea who Red Jacket is. Now, uh, I mean, that's astounding to me that, that they have not been educated. And so just for a second, I'm going to say Red Jacket was a Seneca orator. He was not particularly interested in speaking English, but he was a very good speaker of his own language, and the interpreters were able to interpret his comments, and he was a major negotiator at the Treaty of Canandaigua in 1794. That was one of the principal roles that he had, and one of the things that he was given the task of doing was representing the voices of the women from our community. So they trusted him, they spoke to him, and told him what they wanted him to relate. And that's what he had to relate. And he had to think of how do they view this interaction that we're having with the those negotiators who came to Canandaigua, uh, among them a man named Timothy Pickering, to negotiate that treaty on behalf of the United States. He had to think, what is the concern of our women? Well, obviously, one of the concerns is, where are we going to lay down and sleep? Where is our homeland going to be after this treaty is completed? And um, where are we going to raise our children into the future? Where will we be living? Um, you know, all of those concerns would have been very primary to women. And Red Jacket had that task of being, you know, conscious of this and relating this to those that he was negotiating with. So uh, a very important figure for us, given a peace medal by George Washington, uh, for, you know, his efforts. And so, again, um, for people to not know who he is, have no idea who he is, and especially when you went to Red Jacket High School, as you said, and never hear a mention of it, there again, there's the irony. Yeah. The irony and, and, and I guess, a, a call to action sort of in and of itself. And I'm sure people around the, the country can can find that either in the, the names in which the cities in which they reside or the schools in which they attend. Um, you know, if you see that, um, question it, ask it. Um, Peter, before we go, where can people find you and learn more uh, about your art and the site itself? Um, where are all the good places to find you? Well, I have a website. Um, 
Peter Jemison, G. Peter Jemison, I think is the way it's set up. Uh, but you can go on the web and, and look for uh, my website. Um, I am in an exhibit currently at the Whitney Museum in New York City. Uh, it's something called Around Day's End is the name of this show. Um, but I'm currently in a show at the Whitney Museum. Um, and I think that will run into uh, early winter. Uh, it's open right now. Um, I am working on an exhibit uh, with the Memorial Art Gallery in Rochester, and that will open up in the coming year, um, probably in late March. Um, uh, I have been, my work has been reproduced in a number of publications. The National Museum of the American Indian publishes a magazine called American Indian, and, um, and it, it currently has um, the summer issue had an article about me and about my art and about my work with the museum. I'm a member of the Board of Trustees of NMAI, National Museum of the American Indian. And uh, I'm in an exhibit with them as well, but, uh, but the, the Summer Magazine um, had a very good in-depth interview. Um, so those are some of, the, some of the places I would say where you could learn a little more about my art. And a question we ask for everyone, and this will be a tough one for you. It's a tough one for everyone. But beyond Ganondagan, um, is there an, uh, another favorite historic place or site? Yeah, I thought about this. One of them that I really like is um, Letchworth State Park. Okay. Letchworth State Park is down near uh, Mount Morris, New York. Some people refer to it as the Grand Canyon of the East. Um, has a beautiful canyon with three waterfalls. And my ancestor, whose name, my last name comes from, Mary Jemison, there's a place called the Council House Grounds where there is a cabin that Mary Jemison built for her daughter. And there's a uh, log cabin council house there on the grounds, as well as that's where Mary's Remains were buried, reburied. She was first in Forest Lawn and then moved there, uh, Forest Lawn in Buffalo. So that's one of the places that is a beautiful place. This time of year in the fall, in the summer, a little tougher in the winter. Um, the other place that I, is, is a historic site that has nothing to do with Native history and story, is Falling Water, built by Frank Lloyd Wright. And uh, it's in Pennsylvania, uh, kind of Western Pennsylvania. Um, I just find that area where falling water is located and the environment that they've created around it to be a beautiful location to visit. And so if you have an interest in Frank Lloyd Wright, there's a place I would go and see. Well, those are two fantastic answers. And uh, Letchworth, I'll, I'll vouch for as well, is a, is a, a beautiful place. And um Interesting to get that the Jemison connection there at the end as well. Um, Peter, this has been just like a true honor to be able to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you, hear from you, um, and and to get some of the advice and, and wisdom that you've been able to share with us today uh, for people to think about telling that full story. And I think that that is, is an important takeaway, that it's it's critical for us to think about this and to, to challenge the narrative and to ask questions of things like treaties and um, to make sure that um, the the needs and the rights of um, you know native native peoples is is of top mind um, for all of us at all times. 
Um, but again, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's great to have you and hope to talk to you again soon. Nicholas, thank you for this opportunity to uh, share a bit about Ganondagan and, and a bit about the Onondawaga, the people of the Great Hill. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.